Okay, well, Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Hopefully you've turned there already. We're going to get there right away. But the title of this morning's message is, Because the Lord is Near. Because the Lord is Near. So let's stand together, if you are willing and able, as we listen for God's voice in the reading of the Scriptures. Beginning in verse 4, reading out of the English Standard Version, listen to the word of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we, we are always thankful for your word. It is truth and it is life to us. We need that in our lives all the time. We confess, Lord, that we become so um, familiar with it and we handle the Bible so freely. It is so available to us that we often take it for granted and um, treat it even like a buffet where we can take the parts we like and ignore the parts we don't. So God, we confess that. Uh, and Lord, would you prove us wrong where we're wrong about that, Lord, that it, is, uh, that it is not ours to partake of as we wish and as we choose, but it is all your word and you have something to say to us in it. And so we ask you would say that to us today. Speak, Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory, because it's all yours, Lord. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated if you're standing. Well, coming up through school and into college, I was a percussionist. I think I've maybe shared that uh, before. In fact, I've even years ago played some here for just a short time but I played in band and in orchestra uh, some in college and as I said you know band all, th all up through school but anyway um, I experienced many times what everyone else who's ever been in that situation has experienced and that is the nervousness that just descends upon you right before you're getting ready to begin a performance right? The, the, the butterflies, the jitters, and so on. In spite of the fact that I really had always practiced and, and, and felt prepared going into those uh, concerts and performances. But there's still the fear of messing up, of forgetting a part. Um, and, you know, in the percussion section, uh, there, you know, you can drop a stick, you can knock over cymbals. I mean, there's stuff back there that can really make noise and quite a, a bit of calamity. I uh, wasn't necessarily uh, always so fearful of that, but no matter what instrument you played or if you were a vocalist in a choir and the same sort of feeling, just that, that nervousness that descends upon you. But the conductor would come out onto the stage and address the audience and uh, tell the audience what we were getting ready to play and that sort of thing. And then he would turn and face the band. And, and uh, most directors or conductors that I can remember, certainly the best ones among them, would subtly signal in some way, look at me. Uh, it was unspoken, 
but um, getting everybody's attention. And he had a smile on his face uh, and just a, sort of a, a, a calm countenance about him. Again, this was certainly true of the best ones of those, especially for younger students. But, but, but all of that carriage about himself that was just reassuring uh, and, and just inspired confidence on the part of the band looking at him. And his message was essentially at that moment, just watch me and I'll give you all the direction you need. And there was something about that and no matter the light shining in your face and all the eyes looking on you, if, if you turned your attention to the conductor from whom all your direction would come and uh, who himself looked entirely confident and inspired confidence, uh, everything sort of settled down in that moment and that place of focus. Well, I thought of that in relation to this uh, text. Um, the fact that in, in this passage, joy is commanded and peace is promised. And both the command and the promise are, are rooted in, grounded in, in the Lord, but in the fact that the Lord is near. Let me say that again. Uh, joy is commanded. Peace is promised. Those are sort of the bookends of this passage. And that is grounded in the Lord and in the fact that the Lord is near. And so, uh, even though the world that we live in promises to be uncertain and unfriendly at times, uh, because the Lord is near, we can be glad, we can be gentle, and we can be carefree. That's sort of how this text outlines and how I'm going to uh, tackle it this morning. But we, we look, because the Lord is near, uh, that fact changes our perspective on all the other things that would trouble us otherwise, like our fears and our nervousness in that concert that are somehow calmed by just directing our attention at the conductor. As we're reminded that the Lord is near and our thoughts turn to him, our thoughts about everything else change and our feelings with them. We can be glad, we can be gentle, and we can be carefree because the Lord is near. And so let's look first at the fact that we can be glad. Verse four is a familiar one to many of us, isn't it? The first part of that phrase, especially rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And I don't know how often you even think about what does it mean to rejoice? And how can you possibly do it always? Whatever it means, <laughs> how can you possibly do it always? Uh, that's one of those things that, that, that risks, um, we, we risk thinking of that as being like hyperbole. That's impossible to do. And so, yeah, always, yeah. No, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. As I already said, it's, it is a command, this word rejoice, is a command to be joyful. It is related, uh, it is just another form of the word joy. It's a verb form of the, of the word joy. A command to be joyful. Another translation of this word is be glad. Uh, I think you, there may be some modern translations, maybe paraphrases that use that language, but certainly in, uh, in the Greek, that is a, an appropriate translation of the word, to be glad, um, so, which is to say 
this is a command to be something, not just to do something. Rejoicing is not just uh, expressions of joy, but it is actually being joyful, being glad. Now, this is challenging for us in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, it's a challenge if we think joy is a feeling uh, rather than a, a choice. So, for example, we might say this holiday season, you know, with all this COVID stuff going on, you know, I'm just not feeling the joy. And uh, that might be a sentiment, actually, that rings true for many of us. But we, we, if we think of joy that way, uh, we, we might find it challenging to be told to be joyful, to rejoice. But joy is not supposed to be subject to the whims of our emotions. Um, people often have a similar misunderstanding about love, right? People think of love as being a feeling. But you know, as I know, that the Bible commands us to love. It, it says love as an imperative. Love God love your neighbor, love your spouse, even love your enemies. Now, you know, most people don't feel loving toward their enemies. They wouldn't be enemies if we felt loving toward them. But, but we know, we understand the way the Bible talks about love. It isn't a feeling. It's an action. It's a choice. And so is joy. We're commanded to choose joy, regardless of whether the external circumstances seem to warrant being joyful. Uh, and what makes that an entirely reasonable demand is that we're told to rejoice in the Lord. Now, once again, we, we get used to hearing this language enough that we miss it, um, but this is not just self-improvement uh, language we're given here, self-help, a little self-help guide or whatever. Um, he makes the difference. We're told to rejoice in the Lord. And that's not only a New Testament concept. Uh, that very phrase is used in the Old Testament and Habakkuk actually models it for us beautifully. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. And listen to how he makes the very point, in spite of the fact, that the circumstances don't warrant joy. Joy is what uh, I'm commanded to, to have, and uh, joyful is what I'm commanded to be. He says, Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord in spite of the fact that everything would have me despair. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I'll take joy because of who God is and because of what he has done. Habakkuk knows that's true. And you and I need to call to mind that that's true, what's true of him and what he has done for us. Uh, we'll take joy in him 
because of that fact. So we're, we're told to be glad. Number two, we're told to be gentle. Verse five says, in the ESV, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. In other translations, the word reasonableness is translated uh, moderation. I think in the King James, graciousness um, or gentleness. And so there's a variety of word choices in English, but hopefully that range of words gives us a better sense um, of, of all that's being urged upon us here. That is, don't be emotionally driven people. So he's saying to the disciple of Jesus, the one who is in Christ, the one who is Christ's ambassador in the world, don't be emotionally driven people who are rash and uh, reactionary and retaliatory. Don't, don't be those things. Be, be people who are reasonable, moderate, gracious, gentle. Uh, the, the domain of digital communication, that domain that we live in um, all the time now, you know, social media, email, um, just about any, any place even that you receive information, you can, you can comment. So it becomes this place of sort of social exchange. But the whole domain of digital communication is a greenhouse uh, where, where um, insult and sarcasm just flourish. It's, it's just a greenhouse for growing sarcasm and insult. Um, and, and it's a place where uh, rashness and reaction and retaliation are rewarded. <laughs> you know, the more, the, the more outrageous you are, the more rash, the more retaliatory, the more harsh and all that kind of stuff, the more likes and shares you get and all that kind of stuff, the more of a, the more of a, a fight you um, sort of invite among people who jump in the comment thread uh, sort of at each other. And the more all of that happens, the more... Um, publicity, if you will, you get, the more exposure you get to other people. Your post on social media shows up in the feed of lots of other people because you've been rash and reactionary and retaliatory. It's actually rewarded and then trained. Because it's rewarded, we're like Pavlov's dog. You know, then it's, it's trained into us. The, the exact opposite of what the Bible calls us to, about what the, the opposite of what life in Christ calls us to. And if we desire God's glory above our own, we will forsake all of that attention that we would get. We would deny ourselves the opportunity uh, of the fleeting pleasure that might come from the sarcastic retort or the retaliatory swipe at somebody. We'll resist that uh, so that we might be known for our reasonableness, for our gentleness, for our graciousness. And, and as I've said before, and I, um, I don't wanna sound like a broken record here, but um, that is not the perception that lots of unbelievers and even younger believers have of evangelical Christians in, certainly in 2020, but probably in recent years, 
that we're not known for our reasonableness and uh, graciousness and moderation and gentleness. We ought to be for the sake of the name of Christ. Be gentle in spite of the fact that, that there's an uncertain and unfriendly world. Be gentle. The third uh, imperative here is to be carefree. It's actually spoken in the negative. Do not be anxious. He says uh, there in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Uh, the word be anxious is, again, a verb form of a word that also has a noun form. So where it says be anxious as a verb, the noun would be translated anxiety or anxieties. Um, in some cases, in some translations, um, other times that same word is translated cares. So you think about the places you've read in the Bible where it talks about the cares of this world. So for instance, in the parable of the sower, where Jesus says that some seeds, the sower scatters seeds on four different kinds of soil. Um, you know, some of it's good soil, of course, but some of it, he says, uh, grow, grows up a little bit and then the thorns grow up and choke it, choke it out. And Jesus gives the explanation of that, that of course the sower sows the word and it's choked out by the th what the thorns represent, the cares of this world. You may remember that phrase if you've, uh, if you've read that part of the Bible. Those are anxieties. In other words, it is, it is the noun form of what he's, he's say, telling us not to be here in verse 6. Now, in fact, in the King James Version of uh, verse 6 here, it says, be careful for nothing. Uh, be careful. That's why I use the term be carefree. I don't mean by that, um, you know, just sort of flitting about as if nothing's wrong and pretending there are no problems, even though there are problems and so forth. That's really, uh, that's not what I mean here. I'm, I'm using uh, the term kind of in its biblical sense, free of those cares or anxieties that he's speaking of here. Um, but what's interesting is, in, in the Greek use of this word, cares or anxieties usually have reference to objects in the future, and typically they involve the normal adversities of life. They're poverty, um, sickness, hunger, um, you know, physical threats and harm and abuse and so on. A New Testament scholar, uh, Colin Brown, explains it this way. I, I find this to be so very helpful in, in understanding and appreciating what's being spoken of here. He says this, oppressed when it, concerning the cares or anxieties of the world, um, oppressed by the burdens laid up for him, man imagines himself delivered to a fate before which he stands powerless. By his care, man tries to protect himself as best he can from what confronts him. This, the cares of the world, the anxieties, are our scrambling attempt to protect ourselves best we can from what confronts him. But uh, the, the, the key here is understanding, I think, the reality of it. We know this is true about anxiety. As much as we struggle with it, nevertheless, what's true is that Man imagines himself 
delivered up to a fate uh, before which he stands powerless. There's a future, it's going to be bad, and there's nothing I can do about it. And even though I feel powerless, I scramble to do everything I can. Sometimes I just scramble to do something even though I know it's not making any difference because I feel more powerless if I'm doing nothing and somehow feel a little bit more in control if I'm just doing something. That's anxiety. Imagining a future. Imagining a future. The present may be a reality. We project what that reality is going to mean tomorrow and we have to imagine it to be true. And we understand anxiety is something we share in common as human beings and we empathize with one another for feeling that way. So there's certainly no, well, I, we, we don't want to uh, minimize the significance or the weight of that, make light of it, make it sound like it's no big deal because for those especially who have real struggles with anxiety, it is a big deal and it's a big deal a lot of the time. But the fact remains it is based on our imaginations about the future and it's against those imaginations that we're, we're reminded the end of verse 5, the Lord is at hand. And it's why I read it that way. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. The, the verse division there is actually a little unhelpful um, because it would, it would cause you to separate those two thoughts. But because there's so much uncertainty, because it might be bad, and because there might be plenty of things against which I am powerless, I'm reminded the Lord is at hand because it's not uncertain to him and he's not powerless against it. And he's not powerless to deliver me out of it, even if uh, it, it does meet with some pain and discomfort and so forth. So the Lord is at hand. So first of all, tell him about it. He says, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You know, how is it that you're taking care to protect yourself? Ask him to care for you. Uh, what is it about your imagined future that you feel powerless to change? Again, there might be a relationship that is sort of spiraling out of control or maybe already sort of severed and, 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 and drifting apart and you feel like there's nothing you can do to stop it and it's just going to get worse. This is your projection um, into tomorrow and in the weeks and months and years ahead. Talk to the one who is not powerless, who's all-powerful, for whom nothing is impossible. And as you do, thank him for what he's already done. Thank him for what he's already done for you in the past because you're going to remind yourself when you thank God for specific things, you're going to remind yourself of who God is and of his love for you. When you recall what God has done for you, it reminds you of who he is and of, what, of, of his love for you because of what he's done uh, for you. But also, and this is actually uh, really helpful to understand, when you shift your mind into recall mode, when you're, when you're remembering things for which to be thankful, you're going to shift 
from an emotional frame of mind to a rational frame of mind. And you'll actually put your thinking back in the driver's seat instead of your feelings. That's actually really, really significant. And for people who just tend to be more emotional and they might therefore tend to be more prone to anxiety, uh, one of the really helpful practical things you can do is recall specific things to be thankful for because what that does in your brain is it just shifts the part of your brain that is working to recall uh, those things you're thankful for and, and, and puts your thinking back in the driver's seat instead of your feelings. Ironically, having said all of this, many of us are poised to be discouraged rather than joyful about the Thanksgiving holiday this week. Because, as I said earlier, um, for many of us, our plans are very different than they have been before. And so we're, we're, we're maybe not having the family gatherings we're accustomed to having. And, 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 and for some, that's really, really discouraging. Um, and so we're going into this week actually anxious and not rejoicing. <laughs> because, th because Thanksgiving somehow is the disappointment itself. It's a little ironic, isn't it? But the antidote for our despair about the disruptions to Thanksgiving is to be thankful. <laughs> that, sound, that sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? We're, we're discouraged and despondent about the disruptions of Thanksgiving. The antidote to that is to be thankful, to recall specific ways God's been good to us. Be glad, be gentle, and be carefree. And we don't have to think very hard to identify reasons why we might find it difficult right now in 2020 to be joyful, right? To rejoice. Well, as, I, as, I, as I said at the beginning, when it says um, rejoice always, you might be asking, well, number one, what does it mean to rejoice? And how, how can I possibly, I don't, I don't know if I can do it at all, much less always. And, and we don't have any uh, difficulty coming up with reasons why that would be true or why we would be rash and emotional and anxious in this day and age. Our feelings are real, but they don't have the authority that we give to them. See, uh, we, we are uh, many times governed by our feelings. We are mastered by our feelings and they do not have that authority they're not supposed to have that authority they're supposed to be servants uh, rather than masters because the question isn't how do i feel the question is what do i know to be true about god now again this risks sounding cliche among uh, among christian people and 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 it'll, it'll risk sounding like sunday school answers that we don't even believe but but he puts at the very center of this. We're to rejoice in the Lord and we're not to be anxious because the Lord is near. He makes the difference in the whole thing. What do we know to be true about God in relation to uh, the circumstances that would otherwise cause us despair? In the face of fear and despair and uncertainty, recount what you know to be true of God. So in relationship to the present, we might think, for example, uh, in his presence is fullness of joy, from Psalm 1611. He is God. He does not change. Even though all of our circumstances are, are changing all the time and are uncertain in more ways than we can count, he is God and he does not change. 
Malachi 3.6. Isaiah 46.10 says, He knows the end from the beginning and he shall accomplish all his purposes. You know, if we get our purposes aligned with his purposes, we know they're going to be accomplished. Or if we just get our heart aligned with his purposes, that we desire what his are, his are, and if we don't see him clearly enough to have our purposes aligned with his, our hearts are lined up to desire his purposes. His will be accomplished. His counsel will stand, it says. In him there is no variation or shadow due to change, James 1.17. He is kind in all his works. You're looking for somebody in 2020 who's kind, you might have you might have a hard time finding him in many circles, but he is kind in all his works and evil cannot dwell with him. And in the face of our needs of, of a variety of sorts, we're reminded in Psalm 50, 10, every beast of the forest is his and the cattle on a thousand hills. So in relationship to the present, those, those circumstances that might produce in me anxiety or might um, suppress joy within me. Uh, re we're reminded and recall what's true of God. How about in relationship to the future? There are lots of things, but he sees the injustice in the world and has set a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. You're troubled by all the evil in the world and the injustice in the world? Rightly so. But don't lose heart because he has appointed a day where he will judge the world in righteousness. And he's not going to ask our opinion on what we think is righteous or unrighteous. He, he's going to judge the world in righteousness. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, Revelation 21.4 says, And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have all passed away. He makes all things new, Revelation 21.5 says. And you could go on and on, and you ought to go on and on, searching for what does the Bible tell us is true about God. Not, not what do I feel, but what do I know to be true about God. Recount that. Rehearse that, recite that, declare that, and rejoice over that. So is there something going on right now that maybe makes it difficult for you to rejoice? Have you perhaps meditated so much on all the negative uh, stuff going on, the bad news and the bad behavior of people, that maybe you've sort of dug for yourself a little pit of despair to lie down in? Has some major adversity befallen you? Uh, and it really is. It's personal and it's, it's genuinely bad and painful and you don't really have any control over it. It might be um, your health or the health of a loved one. It might be a financial situation. It might be, again, a broken relationship of some sort. But has adversity befallen you and you don't really have control over how that plays out or what the future holds in that regard? Spend some time reminding yourself. Search the scriptures to find it if you can't remind yourself. What, what does the Bible say is true about God? What do we know to be true? And we, and we place our thoughts, our attention on the conductor, as it were, from whom all the direction will come in our lives, all the provision will come. 
all of our cues we'll get from him. And we'll find, as our focus is there, because we're reminded that the Lord is near and all that's true that follows from that, uh, we'll have every reason and every ability to rejoice, you know, to be glad, to be gentle, and to be carefree people uh, to the glory of his great name. Well, let's pray together. God, you know our hearts and you know the burdens we carry in our uh, lives right now. You know how much of our attention has been captivated by troubling news. In fact, sometimes uh, now we even go searching for it to find out what's the latest bad news that I ought to be upset about. We've, we've formed habits of seeking out um, reasons to be angry or excuses rather to be angry uh, and to be rash and to be emotional. We meditate on things that are just more and more likely to feed our anxiety. So God, would you reveal that even in our time here this morning and, and over against all of that, Remind us of what's true about you. Thank you that, Lord, you are near, that, that, that you are at hand, not only in the sense that you are present, but that you uh, are soon coming again when you will judge the world in righteousness and you will make all things new. Would you remind us of all that's true of you so that we might place once again our security there and, and overflow with joy and thanksgiving in a season of thanksgiving. Be glorified in us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.